This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. Luke, don't give in to hate. That leads to the dark side. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent. I'm your other host, Suara Saleh. And today, we discuss the First Order, its political origins, and how an imperial revivalist movement became such a colossal threat to the galaxy at large. Joining us today for this conversation is now two-time guest of the show, Ross Brown of fangirlblog.com. Ross, welcome back. Thank you so much. Again, happy to be here. Yeah, well, hopefully this time your uh, your presence on the show will not zap the power of my vocal cords and send me into a total state of coma so that I cannot be on the show like you did last time for the Thrawn episode. Yeah, now with 100% less deep debilitating uh, illness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you missed it last time Ross was on, we were discussing the politics of Thrawn, and I died in the middle of the episode. Ross and Suara <laughs> kept the thing afloat. Uh, we are eternally grateful for Ross. Um, Ross, I was scrolling through your Twitter today, as I tend to do, and I saw that you posted recently a review of the new Star Wars book uh, Inferno Squad. Um, can you give us a quick spoiler-free top line of what you thought about the new canon novel by Christy Golden? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the very, very short review is it's great. I, I, I think it's uh, probably the best book so far to come out uh, this year. And I mean, I'm including Thrawn in that uh, list, if only because I had issues with Thrawn's being a balanced book in terms of character arc. But uh, Miss Golden, you know, previously she did Dark Disciple, which uh-huh. was uh, adapted from some unused Clone Wars. Uh, television show scripts but uh, what really I enjoy about uh, Inferno Squad is that she creates some really good characters they're fully fleshed out you know probably the best is the headliner Iden Versio and uh, and of course she's joined with uh, Gideon Hask uh, I think scenes I pronounce it scene Marana and Del Nico and you know the first Battlefront book by Alexander Freed involved the front line that's the grunts, the rebel soldiers. Like you see the ones that you know get blasted to bits in the Battle of Hoth. Well, you don't get that with Infernal Squad. You get, you know, not the front lines. You get the shadows. They're an elite unit that uh, actually Iden's father created to yeah. serve, be more of a scalpel instead of the broadsword. And uh, it's it sort of shows you another angle of the Empire acting to uh, take out problematic individuals, be it sort of corrupt um, Imperials that are problematic or uh, another, the main purpose of the book uh, remnants of Saw Guerrera's uh, partisans and uh, the story of how Inferno Squad deals with the, those partisans is the main bulk and it's a pretty entertaining story yeah, I gotta say, I really loved this book. Um, uh, I think the new Star Wars canon has been a roller coaster in that there are definitely like highs and lows. And 
Um, this new book by Christy Golden, Inferno Squad, is a high. You get the extremes of the galactic civil war, the most loyal and the most indoctrinated uh, and radical imperials. Um, we get to see their story, what they think about everything that's going on, and how they rationalize their decisions. And we also get to see uh, the inside workings of the rem the remnants of Sagrera's partisans who now go by the Dreamers. Um, I guess they are saving the dream. Um, and oh, I'm rolling my eyes so much right now. <laughs> Save the dream. Uh, and they, they. I mean, it's just it's a really meaty book, and it is incredibly relevant and we will get around to it in another episode uh but suara you enjoyed this book as well right i absolutely love this book this was the first time i did audiobook i did the audiobook because the uh actress who voices Ian versio in the battlefront 2 video game uh janina gavankar did the audiobook and uh i watched her on collider jedi council i thought wow she's super cool i'm gonna try this audiobook and her narration is absolutely fantastic i absolutely love Ian versio she is now my favorite imperial right next to our beloved uncle palpy he's still number one obviously the head of the operation <laughs> but but honestly Ian versio is one of my favorite villains of all time because she genuinely believes what she is doing is right and she is so steelily determined to carry out her mission no matter what the cost um you know slight spoiler in that like when you read uh uh inferno squad like she goes to all the links she has to for the cause of her beloved empire and you know in so far as it relates to some of the themes we'll be discussing in this episode and in others to see how a loyal soldier of a you know, regime that we may consider evil to see the height of their devotion is really profound. And it just lets you know that some of the best people can get enraptured in, again, these evil regimes. And uh, again, I absolutely loved it. Christy Golden's an amazing writer. Uh, I, I haven't read uh, Dark Disciple yet, but I think I want to after reading uh, this amazing or audio reading <laughs> to an audiobook first time uh this amazing novel so um yeah i absolutely loved it yeah i mean it really encapsulated um what is called the banality uh, of evil you know it's it's the normalization of it where you have uh seemingly good people who do horrible things uh, by our standards and what we can see as an audience, but um, they're not like sitting in a in a dark throne room like Emperor Palpatine, twiddling his fingers menacingly at his evil plans. Like these people really believe they're doing a great good um, with the horrible and uh, and vicious things that they do, and it's it's important to read about, and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but Inferno Squad is only the latest Star Wars property to touch on political extremism. Um, one such novel graced us last year, Bloodline by Claudia Gray, my favorite, I have to say. It has yet to be dethroned. Yeah, has yet to be dethroned is my favorite of the new Star Wars universe. And this book, this book offers a look at the political origins of the First Order. Um, it also touches on, you know, uh, you know, Leia's, you know, political career and basically how she got to be where she is in The Force Awakens. Um, but it looks at the political origins of the First Order movement, which consumes the galaxy in war uh, by time The Force Awakens comes around. And we are doing this episode just a, a day after uh, a weekend of chaos and tragedy in Charlottesville, Virginia that left one person dead and 19 people injured. 
uh, Jason Kessler and Richard Spencer, prominent white nationalist organizers and self-styled alt-right leaders, led hundreds of their followers into town um, on Friday and Saturday, and it kind of died down a little bit on Sunday, but um, they led them into town for the Unite the Right event, which was met by counter-protesters and opposition. And we had other plans for this week's episode, um, but after the events of the weekend, we thought it necessary to pause and discuss what is going on right in front of us and what Star Wars so clearly teaches us about these political themes that were on display this weekend. Um, those political themes and the movements that we saw, they are the politics of resentment, anger, fear, and hatred. Um, the First Order, as we understand it currently, is not a governing body. It's a paramilitary uh, movement aimed at reviving the glory of the Empire. Um, and yes, there are some who view the works of Vader, Palpatine, and the Empire as work left unfinished. Uh, that is a nod to you, Kylo Ren, who will finish what you started. Um, I wanted to just kind of kick it out to the group here. Um, you know, Ross, feel free to feel free to dive in first as our, our guest. Um, I know you are here, um, particularly well, one because we like you a whole lot, and two, you are a native of Charlottesville, Virginia, and this uh, this whole incident kind of hit you close to home. Um, and I want to have time that we can all talk about what happened over the weekend and share, but with the first order. Um, we have a bunch of different canon in front of us now that sort of explains how this movement came to be. We're going to look at the First Order rising within the New Republic and outside the New Republic, uh, and how the political and the military forces converge to, uh, to give us what we now have in The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. So let's recap Bloodline. Um, again, my favorite book. Uh, top lines from that book. The centrist versus the populist. What did you guys think of having a two-party system, political parties in Star Wars, finally? Well, um, you know, first off, I, I mean, I read this book. I, I kind of paused, like, <laughs> like, not very far in. I'm like, this is a political book. You know, we usually don't get those out of Star Wars. So I was actually kind of already excited from that perspective. Um, and, you know, it... Uh, it kind of reflects, you know, our own government's history um, as our nation's philosophy has debated back and forth over the proper balance of, you know, state power versus federal power. And, uh, I mean, it's, uh, it, was a, it was a nice decision. I, you know, it was something that uh, was sort of suggested by, uh, according to Pablo Hidalgo, by Ryan Johnson. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, that wow. made just everyone think that time, like, well, how's that going to play into the Last Jedi, or which was unnamed? But uh, no, I, it's it was it's also kind of disappointing because uh, you know previously to now, uh, the New Republic was like this. You know, it was threatened by outside sources, research of empire, and the old legends universe. Yeah. And now in our our new reality, it. Um, it's almost a failure. You know, it's, it's like, it's a galaxy that was just sort of paralyzed. It's a hot mess. Empire. Yeah. Uh, at the time when I first read bloodline, I thought, Oh, this is an obvious political parallel to what we have in the United States, a uh, two party system, lots of gridlock, but Claudia Gray made it very clear that these aren't meant to represent Democrats and Republicans. The only parallel 
that she was trying to uh, talk about um, was that gridlock of government being so uh, at odds with uh, its constituent members that it can't get any concrete policies done. And I guess, uh, you know, I really appreciated that. I really appreciated how she could take um, some fundamental elements of politics and see how they could apply to Star Wars within its own context right after it had gone through the empire, but was now trying out the new republic again, a republic form of government again. And I think, like, as I thought about it more and more since I read the book, um, it just, like, makes so much more sense, especially as we've been doing the podcast and thinking about how the republic was founded, how the empire um, was able to come into being by the increasing consolidation of power during the Clone Wars and even before. And thinking about the galaxy being used to that centralization of power under the Empire, although you had obviously evil and horrendous acts happening, you still had a certain sense of order that galactic citizens got used to. And when you had the New Republic, it was promising, oh, freedom, more representative democracy, Probably, yeah, presumably more decentralization. Yeah. And that because you've had the Empire in power for around 20 years, apparently that's enough time in uh, Star Wars Galaxy to deeply embed this sense of rule. You were going to have planets and systems that were going to, uh, like, have a backlash against this that did still want the centralized or, um, publicization like the uh, government owning of industry perhaps and what you see from the centrists is a lot as we see through Ransom Casterco is a lot of yearning to get back to that sort of golden age during the empire when there was so much control when citizens could feel secure when you they didn't have to worry about mercenary groups or yeah. maybe even like the new order terrorists in the unknown regions or anything like that when they could really have that sense of ownership and control over their own destiny yeah well you know like the now. empire yeah. the empire was a response to the clone wars it was a time of just massive bloodshed disorder uh, factionalism and and just the galaxy being torn apart um, by rampant you know self-interest um, and the empire basically unified everybody behind one thing, one common purpose, one ideal, and one flag. And to a lot of people, um, what that is, is exactly what Palpatine said it is. It's, it's, it's peace, it's order, um, it's safety. And there was this faction of people. And, and again, everyone comes to the first order, um, and this rising political movement, um, from different perspectives in, in bloodline, uh, we see the centrist party versus the populist party and the centrist party, um, their hot shot, their talent is ran- <laughs> ransom Casterfo, um, a, a, a young man, um, who, looks back on the empire fondly. He recognizes that there was uh, deficits, that there were problems, there was corruption. He also loathes Darth Vader because Darth Vader worked his father to death, I, I believe in a camp. Um, so he, he's not like super starry eyed, but he, he does have a certain sense of, um, I guess, I guess he just looks up to the, the unified banner of the galaxy rather than the fractitious state under the new Republic and under the old Republic. Um, my favorite bit that they brought into 
bloodline was the idea of imperial memorabilia. Uh, when Ransom Costerfo, uh, I guess Leia comes across his items in the in the office. Do you remember that? Yes, very vividly. Uh, and I just remember Leia's shock. I remember Leia looking upon this with everything she had been through and what she had seen galactic citizens been through under the iron rule of the empire, what non-humans had had to go through in terms of slavery, in terms of oppression and just being horrified that someone as well put together, as smart, as seemingly um, like noble as Rosario could look up to this could look up to this sort of horror yeah and you know i I believe i can't remember exactly what he has helmets right of imperial guards stormtrooper helmets i don't think he had an actual imperial flag but basically what it felt like was it felt like southern nostalgia it felt like confederate nostalgia did not i i felt like that's what was being hearkened to in this book because he he almost explicitly made the heritage argument right like you know this is this is who we are this is my family you know this is not something i'm ashamed of um and and she's making the oppression argument yeah the um you know, one of the things he has, and one of the quotes for him, like an inner thought, is is uh, is actually is like, to quote to him, you know, the imperial relics stood for strength. To others, they stood for domination. But in terms of like the sort of that Southern Confederate heritage, um, you know, it they're they're the, you know, that's a great analogy because both of those rely on this purposeful blindness to the terrible thing that came with the, all those positive benefits yeah you know um i mean like people who like want to uh dress up in confederate uniforms and prayed about how great the confederacy was i guarantee you they're not thinking about how great it was for the millions of people who lived in bondage the entire time who were uh, subjected to the cruelest of cruelties and that same is here true for the the centrist and uh they, uh, they don't think about the, well, actually, to a degree, it's actually some of them like, hey, we kind of like we were dominating other people. But for Castelco, yeah, he tries to legitimize his own belief in it by saying, look, under Palpatine, it was bad because he was corrupt. He was, he was an evil person. So the system was evil. We just need someone but to do it better. Person. Yeah. I mean, basically, you know, I was sort of looking into this earlier, but. You know, my first thought was like, okay, this is kind of like a Hobbesian kind of guy. He really likes the monarchy. But uh, yeah. it's almost like he, he really wants was this, this the idea of the enlightened despot. You know, yes, yes. The ruler for the people, but where the people have no voice. But hey, it's all right. I'm going to look out for you. I'm going to do what I can to make sure your lives are great. You mean like George Lucas? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> George, I always think whenever I read Anakin Skywalker's lines and I read Ransom because I'm like, oh, okay, so y'all are reflecting uh, Mr. George Lucas who wants the enlightened despot who thinks it's the best way for us to go for it. It's great if you have the right guy in charge. Yeah, I mean, and that's, I mean, that is that is absolutely human nature when it comes to politics. It's, uh, it's never a belief that um, the politics are wrong or that the beliefs are wrong. It's it's that the people are wrong. And, and, you know, as long as we get the right person in this place, these ideas will play out quite naturally. Um, I mean, that's you see you see that every election. It's not yeah. it's not the government. It's it's who's running the government. 
Yeah, and I mean, when you look at today, when you look at polls being conducted in the U.S. about how people feel about democracy, unfortunately, it's on the downturn, especially in our generation, in the millennial generation. We're, as a whole, feeling dissatisfied with democracy because we're so ill-content with how things are going socioeconomically and politically. And that's a really scary thought. It's scary to me, guys. It is scary. I think... I I see... I feel like there's a lot of this feeling for myself is that it's like there's the older this older generation is uh, kind of like reacting uh, to what everyone else wants and like no 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 we, we don't want it that way we're gonna try and do everything we can to like cement the world as we like it back 50 years ago and uh, it's it's demoralizing because the way it's set up in terms of participation money funding everything like that uh, districting it seems like there's this insurmountable barrier to like trying to like, Hey, I want, I'm in democracy so I can dictate my own political future along with my fellow like-minded individuals. And some of that feels kind of, um, you know, watered down, you know, it's undermined by the fact of, uh, this existing wheel that's out there. And it's hard, it's hard to convince a millennial political activist in North Carolina of the, uh, the strength and good of democracy when democracy can be used to uh, create gerrymandering uh, so deep and so strong uh, that Democrats can never get elected in a district, uh, a certain district or most of the state um, for a decade to come. I mean, that's, that's something that undermines the very fabric of belief in democracy. Um, and I think that's almost worse than subverting the actual, the actual democracy, like in the short term, right? Like, as 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 belief in it declines, um, it can only go south from there. But I, I, I we could stay on that forever. My gosh, I want to get back. I want to get back to the the New Republic here real quick because there are a bunch of different players that I wanted to get through real quick that are within the New Republic before we start to look outside of the New Republic because the First Order has a political arm, right? And their political arm is sort of setting the stage because in the time of bloodline, you have the idea of the first order uh, is out there because of the imperial uh, ruling council or the shadow council that was in the in the outer reaches or in the unknown regions. And you have the character Carice Sindian. Uh, she is a New Republic senator. Um, she is uh, a, a, like a co-governor of the Alderan system. Was that the system that she was part uh, of? Arcanus. No. Yeah. Which one? She's Arcanus. Arcanus. Same place as Huts. Oh, I didn't. I didn't make that connection. <laughs> I knew the Huxes were from Arcanus. I didn't realize she was. Got it. Um, all right, that makes a lot more sense. But so you have Carice Sendian, who is working to to subvert the politics of the New Republic. She is invested in creating and sowing discord uh, and dysfunction, and also trying to. Uh, uh, I guess guess weaken its institutions and people's belief that it will work. Um, she's involved in a plot to fund um, and arm a group of paramilitary fighters called the Maxine Warriors. And in the course of Bloodline, there is a attack on the Senate building. There's a bombing by by a uh, member of the Maxine Warriors named Ariz Hall Hadrassian. 
Um, and you sort of see the, the dynamics play out here in that you have this political thinker who believes in the idea of the First Order, Carice Sendian, but she's sort of using paramilitary organizations to sow discord uh, and then throw them away at a moment's notice. Like, she does away with them as soon as they that she's done with them for their purposes. Um, it's really interesting. Like, the intrigue of this novel is just so meaty. Yeah, totally. I think uh, Carice Sundian, um, you didn't mention that uh, basically she's the worst. She is uh, <laughs> timing, a duplicitous, passive-aggressive, uh, basically uh, that mean high schooler uh, you always had to deal with, but in the Senate, and she actually has influence. Yeah, she just... Um, was being completely manipulative to Leia, to her fellow senators, and um, I think, like, never showed her real cards. I think she put up a real pretext of, like, being obsessed with wealth and prestige and just her own status when really she was funding these uh, horrific um, paramilitaries and abetting the First Order. So, um, And it was all about funding, right? Like... It was it was about funding the first order. This whole plot that played out in Bloodline, they were they were using uh, the Amaxine warriors and a crime syndicate leader named Ren Riven Dai um, to to funnel money out towards the actual first order uh, military arm, where they were sending them funds to build their build their fleets, uh, get weapons, and all this stuff. And she says this thing about the Amaxine warriors where they, they sort of were just there to sow discord for a little while, but then do away with them. She says that they were a pretext rather than a means to the First Order. And then as soon as she was done with them, she defunded the militia uh, for the bombing of the Senate building because it was complicating her plan to basically make uh, the Senate dysfunctional. And I thought that was really interesting because when, when the Amaxine warriors went rogue and bombed the Senate building, she actually was was upset about that because a bombing on the Senate building brought senators together, right? Like, that was her reasoning. Like, if you bomb the Senate building, then it actually creates political unity. <laughs> and so if you are someone who's trying to subvert um, the system, that actually didn't work for her. I, I, she was a fascinating and horribly evil character. She gets a little bit of her just reserve, desserts at the end, but, uh, I mean, she's... She, Claudia Gray did a great job of creating that dual-faced nature of this one woman who seems obsessed with titles and whatnot. And it's important she is, but uh, there's like that whirling machine inside behind her eyes that's just like plotting and plotting. And um, I, I don't know how deep we want to go into spoilers, but, you know, she uses that to great effect against one of the main characters who... Uh, mm-hmm. The on again, off again, on again ally to Leia. In terms of like being obsessed with that wealth and prestige, it makes me think of how she quote wants to make the galaxy great again. How she maybe her family benefit. I don't think we got many details of this in Bloodline, but I could very much imagine how her family uh, was very prestigious under the Empire, and how maybe she wanted to get something back to that. Yeah, I'm, the rise of the First Order, and uh, this will be a good good time to pivot over to outside the New Republic, but it's it's about the politics of resentment. It's what people had before and what they don't have now, um, and we've talked about this even in the context of the Rebellion to kind of throw a little bit of shade their way, too. Like, you know, when, um, when you're put out of power, 
um, that doesn't feel good. And what you do in that moment will define uh, who you are for the rest of history. And what you have in the first order is a bunch of people who are are seeing what they lost and they're trying to reclaim it, a a lost sense of glory. Um, And that lost sense of glory is also alive and hungry outside the New Republic, outside their reach in the unknown regions. Um, And I believe the best two characters to focus in on are the characters of Brindle and Armitage Hux. Um, Armitage Hux, who has screen time. Brindle, who has more book time. Um, Armitage Hux is General Hux, as seen in The Force Awakens. Um, the dashing redhead who gives the flaming speech atop Starkiller Base. Um, and Brindle Hux is his estranged father who doesn't much care for him because uh, Armitage is a bastard son. Um, they are both from the planet Arcanus. Um, at the end of the Galactic Civil War was when Armitage was born as a result of an affair that Brindle had had with a kitchen maid uh, at the Imperial Academy. And so Armitage grew up in this academy during the final sieges of the war, and he was groomed and raised in exile um, as, an, as you know, not Imperial royalty per se, but uh, Imperial nobility. Um, raised, yeah, raised on stories of the empire's glory and saving the galaxy from the Clone Wars. And, and by that, I mean that he was raised to, to hear the story about how the empire saved the galaxy from chaos and disorder. And then it makes sense why you think he might give a speech condemning the new Republic for acquiescing to disorder. Yeah. Um, you know, about that speech in the force awakens, <laughs> it just, you know, the parallels to Nazis and neo-Nazis was so, so striking. It was even the, just the way Armitage was speaking was, you know, basically based directly off of Hitler. I'm sure Donald Gleason was probably watching a bunch of old Hitler speeches to try to like get, um, you know, some sort of quote, some sort of inspiration for that, for this horrible character who would, immediately decide, oh, because uh, the New Republic is funding the resistance, we need to destroy their entire system. We need to destroy, yeah. we need to kill billions and billions of people. And um, I would say, mentality. just to, just to yeah. jump in on a detail right there, I would say actually the, the inspirations for you know, the Nazis in that big scene are the, are the environment and the camera angles used. It's the, uh, it's the camera angles looking up at the speaker and then looking down at the crowd to kind of convey a sense of bigness, um, and, and larger than lifestyle. And then of course the red banners, which the empire was always Nazi like, but they went like full on with the first order and the red banners. (laughs) And that's actually, uh, it's like one of those weird connections back to New Hope because George Lucas was influenced by uh, Lady Reichenstahl mm. in Triumph of the Will for the, for the Nazis back in the 1930s. And uh, so when Lucas used it, he used it for the good guys. At, That's at the true. Point. But it definitely, wow. Abrams definitely pivoted here and said, yeah, these guys are basically like Nazis. Here's their Nazi assembly. And uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's a striking visual way of, you know, showing this uh, moment in, the Star Wars history. Right, and I just want to continue uh, just about like um, his speech and everything that inspired him to get to that moment. Stephen, you were talking about Armitage being raised in exile. Um, slight spoiler for um, 
Empire's End here, uh, you know, we see him in that book and we see him being whisked away to the unknown regions uh, at the end after the Empire is defeated. So he is brought up in exile, uh, being given this false narrative of how the New Republic won, how they're creating disorder in the galaxy after the order that the Empire had instilled. And having that resentment and hatred so pent up built in him for virtually his entire life, I could totally see that leading him to that moment because who, what other sort of person would do that except one who has incredible hatred and self-loathing. Ross, you've got, you've got a little, little detail to add here on the aftermath series and sort of what happened after the dissolve of the empire what kept them going was the Imperial Shadow Council. Um, and we, we are doing a little bit of spoilers here, y'all, just kind of like top lines from the Aftermath book series so that you can sort of get some context and understanding of what's going on in Star Wars if you are not an active reader of those canon novels. So I wanted to kick it over to, to Ross real quick just to sort of walk us through um, briefly, you know, what, what goes on with the Imperial Shadow Council and how does that sort of lead um, to the Hux situation? Yeah, well, um, so the Shadow Council kind of starts to form in the first book of the series, Aftermath, where we first are introduced to Grand Admiral uh, Ray Sloan, promoted since uh, John Jackson Miller created her for his uh, New Dawn book. But um, she's in charge. She meets with a bunch of Imperials who are basically like sort of the leaders of different factions that have emerged in the post-Palpatine era. And uh, very soon, well, basically at the very end of that book and in the next two books, you learn that the Shadow Council has been created through uh, the manipulations and design of this guy named Gallius Rax, who is a really big, bad guy. And Rax is like the hand-picked um, servant of Palpatine to sort of oversee the contingency of, okay, what if I die? Then what happens? And the, sort of the part of it is that Gallius creates the Shadow Council with Sloan as his figurehead in charge to move the remnants of the Empire and the, sort of the galaxy into his position to uh, sort of ruin it, saying, uh, we're going to take this game tape, this game table, and just you know, toss it up there and break it. And uh, by the end of Empire's End, most of the, the council is, is dead, um, either by... Uh, being put into a situation where they're not going to win or by a Gauss's hand himself. Like there's uh, one individual, I can't remember his name. I just read it uh, two seconds ago. But um, he, Gallius literally gives him the shaft, just like uh, O'Palpy. And uh, <laughs> and so the whole point of it, though, was like to bring the, a certain level of the Imperial fleet to Jakku and get the rebel fleet to Jakku. And they were going to blow up Jakku while Gallius... And the Huxes were going to basically flee to the unknown territory, space, unknown space, and uh, basically ruin, leave room behind so that the Empire can be rebuilt stronger without the weaknesses that brought it down before. And, uh, and it, it's not going to plan until he does something bad, which is he crosses Ray Sloan. And uh, Sloan, with the help of uh, Nora Wexley and her husband, end up killing him. Uh, Gallius and Gallius, to his credit, he's so committed to this idea of restarting the empire 
he uh, when he's like dying, he's he's like, hey Sloan, you need that. You need to go get Hux. Go meet this superstar destroyer out in the middle of nowhere and start over. You have to do this. You can't let it fail. And and that's what happens. Empire then ends with Ray Sloan in charge with Hux, and they're they're on their way to uh, go establish what becomes the First Order. Yeah, what I was really interested to see in this book was Armitage Hux um, grow up in sort of this environment of of, uh, of dog-eat-dog uh, strength and viciousness at all costs um, to survive and to, and to reclaim what their family had lost. Like, there's this, um, there's this scene where he's finally given some command over the other boys in his unit, which, again, the context of that is that he came up in a, a child academy um, for Imperial soldiers, and, and when he's finally given the opportunity, he, you know, he slaps, slaps some of these, these kids who you know, had previously been over him around. It's, it's really interesting to see just sort of anger drive um, this young boy, and then you see how you get to this seething um, individual that we see in The Force Awakens who is well put together. He's prim and proper. He's got a nice haircut. Um, but man, when you get him going about uh, something that was stolen from him, something that was taken from his family and everyone like him, um, man, it just like the, the mask just kind of just falls right off. Yeah, it's that utmost sense of entitlement, like to an extremely dangerous degree like farm i mean obviously we deal with entitled people every day but this is it at its maximum like gone beyond any sense of like human decency where he's like everything has been stolen from me i'm gonna take everything i want by force because my people the empire has been you know just like a, had a, been dealt with a really bad lot and we got to it's this really sort of same mentality that drives so many groups around the world who have felt, for example, when another minority comes into uh, the t- political or socioeconomic table or when they feel that they don't have the sense of ownership of the land anymore when it was just them I think that's what we're really seeing with Hux in the First Order. You know, I think especially through this discussion and thinking about everything that's been going on the past uh, couple of weeks, the past couple of months, really, it just feels like an encapsulation of that. Yeah, and you know, just to, just to kind of cap our conversation about the First Order. Um, you know, it's it's. I'm I'm not the keeper of Wikipedia, so there's definitely stuff that we are, are missing and, and kind of going over here. But what I thought was just most interesting and, and important to talk about is the role that different players play in the rise of movements and and great threats um, to security and and to democracy. You have. Um, you have political players who wear masks and they hide. Um, they don't tell you what they really believe and, and where they stand on things. And then you have folks who are very, quite easy to read. I kind of want to give everyone an opportunity to say what they think the First Order represents. Um, you know, what George, not George Lucas, but what, what Lucasfilm and Disney and everyone who was working on The Force Awakens and the conception of this new era of Star Wars was thinking when they put together this new this new villain uh, being the First Order. Because I think the, the easy thing to do is go, oh, 
oh, they just wanted to rebrand Stormtroopers and just try to do the exact same thing over again. And and I think to a lot of casual fans and observers of Star Wars, that's exactly what it looks like. Um, but it really is, I think, a lot deeper and, and more layered than that. Um, the First Order, to me, it's not one thing or the other. Um, Star Wars is a is big and like the sandbox that it plays in is also very big. And I mean that from the socio-political context in which Star Wars um, gets written. I think my favorite assessment on the politics of The Force Awakens and Star Wars in the 21st century came from my interview with guest Eric Geller of Politico, um, known fanboy, um, where he described it as the First Order as being the politics of disorder in, in this century. And the First Order captures many flavors of the time. One of those is terrorism, um, the kind of weapon that they wield and the way that they, the way in which they wield it. They're not organized and methodical like the Empire. They are more geared towards chaos. Um, a second thing being the nuclear proliferation uh, that we see across the world right now in, in a way that we haven't really seen since the Cold War, and that's with radical actors um, such as Iran and North Korea. I think it is no coincidence um, that both have supreme leaders uh, of those countries, all right? And that's exactly what the First Order has in Supreme Leader Snoke. And the third thing being the politics of racial and class resentment. Um, that is something else that the, that the First Order encapsulates um, in a different sort of way. Um, again, it's sort of specious. It's more human-based, um, and it's more based on class uh, of the post-empire. Um, and that's something that's playing out globally right now in our own world. And the rage of Hux is the rage of glory lost. And that kid, that kid in the front row of the Tiki Torch Parade in Charlottesville, who's now been identified as Peter uh, Sivantovic. Um, he's you know, the one on the far right uh, in that front lineup picture who's just, um, just screaming, just yelling, whatever, probably yelling blood and soil or whatever they were shouting. And it reminded me immediately of Hux. That was one of the first things that I thought when I saw that photo was just that it's that thing in the eyes. It's like that, just the, the fire in the eyes sort of thing um, that Hux has in that moment in The Force Awakens. And that was just so present in a bunch of young people in Charlottesville. Well, I'm going to echo a lot of what you said, Stephen. The when I first saw The Force Awakens, I, when I saw The First Order, I immediately thought neo-Nazis. But along with what else was going on in the news at the time, specifically ISIS in Iraq, I realized that, oh, no, wait, this is really ISIS, but with a, a neo-Nazi ideology. It's as though it's a combination of those two. But then I thought about it more. It's really all extremist groups worldwide. You know, J.J. Abrams noted that the uh, he had the concept for the First Order as being like neo-Nazis who were in Argentina, but like regrouped and came back. You know, they were definitely the primary inspiration. But like I said, they represent the entirety of extremism you know they use fear and suspicion between different groups of people or sentient beings and to, they try to have their own group rule as a result they seek to recreate an artificial quote golden age where their group ruled over others you know the like in terms of representing isis like isis's dangerous ideology spurs them to genocide against non-muslims 
alike to what Nazis try to do to eradicate non-members of the Aryan race. You know, I think ISIS, the first order, Nazis, they want to make their countries, quote, great again, like being alike to the caliphate or the confederacy or the empire. You know, it's like, it, it just... It's all that primary sentiment of using fear, suspicion, and hatred between different groups to get their own group, which was the primary source of power a long time ago, to be in that role. And it's bred from resentment. It's bred from that fear. It's bred from insecurity. It's it's just, it's just sad that you know what we see in fiction we see to some extent or another playing out in real life. Yes, like neo-Nazis and white supremacists are nowhere near as powerful, thank God, like as they are in Force Awakens, and thank God that ISIS is currently being defeated in Iraq and Syria, but we have had so many groups like these worldwide, you know, trying to attack each other or trying to take over their land, think of the Taliban, think of even to some extent what's happening in Myanmar right now with the Rohingya Muslims, it's, there's just like so much, like it's all based in human or sentient being fear and resentment of the other and using that fear to impose your twisted version of order. And we have to, I think the first order just shows what we need to do to prevent that. We need to be the resistance in real life. So that's what I think of when I see the first order, basically. <laughs> well, I've, I've learned that if Steven says, Ross or Suara, go ahead. I should really jump ahead of Suara because he, he does an awesome job of talking. <laughs> uh, but so I, I totally agree because I think um, there's, there's two elements for me. But uh, one element is that the first order just they embody, you know, sort of all the political and sort of social evils that have been with us uh, since the dawn of time. Uh, you know, using that fear, using that hate that leaders direct towards their people against other people for usually for pain and suffering and for personal gain. I mean, I could definitely see the Nazi comparison for the First Order. And it's not just, you know, Lenny uh, Reisenstahl uh, you know, trying for the wheel, the above the game where they shoot off the the star killer laser. There's there's like this. You can see this evolution where they actually studied, you know, the rise of the German the Nazi Party, where it's, um, for example, the violations of the Treaty of Versailles, where the the, yeah. the Nazi war machine was building weapons that were outlawed by treaty, which is just like the Galactic Accordance. I think is what they had uh, at the end of Empire's End. And uh, you also have that anger that, um, you know, begin with the, the stab in the back that uh, was spoken of that came as a result of sort of like a fifth column generally attributed to like the, the Jewish members of the German societies where there's and that, you know, but for this, we would be in power already. But for this, we've, we lost all these things. We suffered for all these things. So now we're, we're back, we're angry, and we're going to show everyone how to do everything's right, how to do everything's the, the perfect way, which yeah. comes at the end of a bayonet. And and that's all kind of there, even the fact they have like the sort of different political, like the, the centrist supporting and sort of easing in this evil in a more packaged 
manner to make it palatable to others. And um, so, I, I there's there's I will say you know it's it's like one of the things about the Force Awakens. It's not a copy of the original trilogy or New Hope. It's it's a spin. It's an homage, but a slightly different twist or different take. Yeah. And it's something that makes me appreciate that movie so much. It's like I see what you're doing totally. here. And uh, and so the first order, you know, it's it's not just the Empire 2.0. It's it's a little bit different, and in a way, uh, it's, it's far more scarier because the Empire is evil because you know it's just they have kind of like their modus operandi. Is you know it's it's like okay, uh, we have bad guys in charge. So Vader, he kills people when he gets ticked off. Yep, Palpatine, who's undermining democracy, that's what he does. But the First Order, I mean, it's like a from the top to the bottom belief system and that's not necessarily true for the empire but we read about in the original trilogy you have yeah. people who follow the empire for different reasons i mean one of my favorite characters uh, created since the uh, disney takeover is dr afra hmm. and there's this moment where afra meets vader for the first time it's issue number three of darth vader title and Afra doesn't even know if she's going to live or not. She doesn't know why Vader's here, but she basically says, she's like, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Because she she lived through that chaos created by the Clone Wars where her, her mother was killed by, you know, roaming bandits and not, and she was basically orphaned for a while. And she saw the very worst of that chaos that allowed the Empire to be accepted. And she saw the Empire's mission of creating order out of that chaos as more than uh, good enough to make up for all the evils it did. And, wow. And so, yeah. And with the First Order, that's not the case. <laughs> you know, you, you have those centrists who are just sort of like, ah, they're the good old days. But mm-hmm. those centrists really aren't the actual First Order. They're, they're like the support group, the auxiliary, who, you know, they, they, they're like the sort of the political donors. Like, we're not, we don't want to get our hands today, but here's the money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do what you want to do. And uh, I think that's what makes the first order actually a lot more scary than uh, the Empire. Yeah, it's it's very much like that whole Hail Hydra thing, right? <laughs> and and I'm I'm actually really glad you mentioned um, you know, how the First Order is flaunting uh, the galactic uh, accordance, you know, because again, that kind of goes to the Iran and North Korea thing with, you know, that's how the First Order in terms of the historical context is is different. It's not a copy of the empire. I mean, this is a a group that has been flaunting a treaty um, for the course of of two decades um, that says that they cannot arm past a certain extent, they cannot develop weaponry past a certain extent, and what they keep doing over the course uh, of the period before the Force Awakens is wearing down uh, the New Republic's resolve and testing them to see if they actually have any teeth to back up the things that they say they will do if they arm and if they make another starship and if they create another legion of troops. And that is 100% something we see in the news uh, every couple of weeks in our own world um, that is unique to this Star Wars universe and not to the last one. And so I, while I kind of like sympathize with some of the, the 
ideas that, you know, the first order is a carbon copy of the empire for marketing. Like, yeah, it, there may be a marketing aspect there why they wanted to make it so similar, but it's completely different. <laughs> and I just, I really, I really appreciate it when, when we're able to, to kind of parse why they're different. And I, I think it's, they're just so much more dangerous. They're so much more irrational and they're clawing and desperate. Um, and they're, they're angry in a way that the empire is not. The empire is just affirming their rule. Um, the first order is, um, again, seething at the teeth for something that they they've lost. Um, with that, I think it is as good as time as any to go over to our listener emails. Um, and then we're going to jump real quick into our Bantha fodder segment to round out episode 37 of Beltway Banthas, uh, with special guest Ross Brown. Here is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. And our first listener email today comes from Cheston Lee in regards to our episode from last week on race, representation, and resentment in Star Wars uh, and fandom. And Cheston writes, Very interesting to hear from you two on this topic with regard to your different backgrounds and present life situations, uh, that being political leanings, uh, being a parent, racial backgrounds, and differences there. Um, Myself, I find it often difficult to discuss many social topics online. Given that I'm a cis white guy, from upstate New York, I definitely carry quite a bit of my background with me. While I have always felt Star Wars has been a bit of an isolated place for fan discussions in the past, it too has become a place for conversations around race and gender. Overall, I feel this is a good thing, and the shift toward greater diversity has helped grow and make Star Wars fandom a more comfortable place for many, and thank you all for discussing these topics. It is, however, something I find myself uncomfortable discussing with detractors without devolving into personal attacks. Yeah, I understand that, Justin. Um, And there are questions that I struggle with, such as, is it possible to have productive conversations with people that feel that these topics don't have a place in Star Wars? Should I, given my background, just get out of the way uh, and others who are more representative of the change we want to see lead the way? And what should my role be as an advocate? And how do we come together and celebrate our mutual love of the Star Wars universe without fracturing our community? Um, Cheston, these are all really important questions. Um, we don't have all the answers. All I know is that more conversation is, uh, is better than less. Um, and we all bring something different to the table. Absolutely. Every one of us. Um, and just, yeah. yeah, and just I one, agree. one note, one note for emails that all the, all the ones coming forward, they're excerpts of the emails. Cause a lot of them are very long. Um, so all of them are just excerpts of the longer emails. So hopefully they're all in context and good, but, uh, Swar, now go ahead. <laughs> right. I was just going to say, uh, in response to Chesson, thank you for your email and going to keep this brief, just come at it with an open heart and open mind and with good friends that you can trust and that do have different backgrounds from you. And don't be afraid to have those open and honest conversations as Stephen and I did in our last episode. Okay, so I'm going to move on to the second email from our good friend Mike Harris and fellow retro zapper. Okay. 
Bloodline by Claudia Gray was at a great peak at the galaxy far, far away a few years before we see it in The Force Awakens. The state of galactic politics is in a similar state as it was during the prequel trilogy, which is heartbreaking. Political squabbling, backstabbing, and bureaucratic roadblocks preventing real progress from being made. Have they learned nothing of the past? How easily Palpatine used the chaos to foment his empire? The ground is set is then set for politicians either secretly in league with the First Order or too complacent to do anything about it to assist in the eventual downfall of the newly formed Republic, which leads me to Charlottesville. What happened this weekend is heartbreaking and I am still processing it. To me though, to me, though, what I find most dangerous and terrifying about it all is not the actions of these hate groups, but the seeming unwillingness to do anything about it. Whether it's politicians refusing to take a meaningful stance against it or, quote, free speech advocates telling us what we need to take the good bad when it comes to opinions. Liking pineapple on pizza is an opinion. Advocating the yeah, advocating the eradication of other races, religions, and sexual genders and or identities is not, quote, having a different opinion. We see a lot of the political games between the senators in books like Bloodline and, it, and in the other Star Wars media, but we don't see a kind of citizen revolt, quote, like the rebellion, until after tyranny descends on the galaxy. We can't afford to wait till it's too late. We don't have an Ewok army on our side. <laughs> so in the wake of another tragedy, <laughs> yep, no, exactly. So in the wake of another tragedy, I ask people to stand up. If you are sick and tired of watching the news and feeling helpless, be the change you wish to see in the world. Reach across the aisle, whatever side you're on, and realize we have more in common than we have differences. Mike, thank you so, so much for your very passionate email. I very much agree we should all be united in the face of these very anti-democratic and anti-American values that we're seeing espoused against pluralism, against um, what really makes this country great, the unification of its people. Ross, take it away. All right. So Alexander writes us, watching this weekend's event is testing my faith that the country's institutions will be able to withstand what feels as another front in the continued assault on the crumbling bedrock foundations of our republic. It feels what I was taught in school, what I believe is in is being assaulted from the worst in our society and from within parts of our own government. The only thing that gives me hope is that there's a pushback against the forces of perpetual darkness. That fellow citizens are saying, never again, and this is not gonna happen in my country. That may be the lessons of history and belief in our country is strong enough to hold it together. But my hope does not spring eternal either. But to see that the ultimate terrible price was paid by a fellow citizen is heartbreaking. And I feel this struggle has taken an awful turn for the worst. It may be a harbinger to what the future may hold, I so hope I am wrong on this account. I feel like there is no middle ground when it comes to this. As either you are for the Republic and what it stands, or you're not. I feel more like Saw Gera in wanting to respond forcefully in rhetoric over the gentle wisdom of Yoda today. That bothers me to no end, as Yoda has always been my hero. And I know in my heart he is right. But how can there even be a middle ground or even an understanding with the racist individuals with what occurred in Charlottesville, to be honest? It feels as the force has grown dimmer over the weekend. We are slipping into darkness we haven't seen since the days before the Civil War. Again, I hope I am wrong. 
I really appreciate this this email from Alex. Um, Alex lays out a lot of his optimism before kind of going into to the doom and gloom there. Um, I, I share a lot of your fears, um, some of them in different forms. I think um, in many ways things are darker and more grim across the whole world in terms of the political climate and mood um, than we've ever seen. I mean, this really just feels um, like a rehash of the early 30s uh, with street brawls between fascists and communists uh, and everybody else left in the middle just wondering like, so which side do I have to take that I actually don't like? Um, it's, it's scary times. And, you know, I got to say, I, I really, I feel for you with, with your, your love of Yoda um, and the pull towards the Saw Gerrera. Um, you know, these are two very different views um, about humanity and, and people's potential to be good and what you're supposed to do when faced with evil and things that you dislike. Um, I believe uh, that you cannot um, see ground um, to hate, and that means... Um, even against people who are hateful. Um, it's, it's the Martin Luther King quote, you cannot, you know, you cannot drive out darkness with darkness, only light can do that. You cannot uh, combat hate with hate, only love can do that. Um, I, I say stick with the school of Yoda. Um, you know, Saw Gerrera, he wears, he wears robotic pieces for a reason. He's supposed to look and be like a Darth Vader of the Rebellion for a reason. Um, and you don't want to do that. And I don't think anybody wants to be that person. I think Sagarer is supposed to be there as a reminder of what can happen to you, um, even in the pursuit of what you view as good ends. And Tim, that was really beautiful to say. And I just want to add on to that because Martin Luther King's um, using love and uh, nonviolence to combat the darkness it's never a quote pacifist thing you know it's never he was just taking it he always said that being brave to be nonviolent, to be like those counter protests in charlottesville to be like that amazing woman who was killed that um alexander mentioned in his email her name was heather Heyer. she was a paralegal who went down to charlottesville to protest the spewing of hatred to be like her to use your voice to basically voice down like those advocating hatred and division and violence. You know, we need to be like Dr. King. We need to be like Heather and we need to be like Yoda. Just like you said, Stephen. All right. Now, if I could add real quick. Yeah. Uh, one thing, Alexander, is just remember that, uh, one reason, one reason things look darker than they ever have before is, uh, so I at least like to believe that because things are brighter than they ever have before. I mean, if you look around, um, people are, are getting rights and opportunities that historically have been denied them. And there's, right. re, there's a reaction to that. This is, there's a, and that reaction is a shadow to the brightness that's happening. And unfortunately, the greater the light, the more ugly the truth can be revealed, uh, of those darker shadows. So while it does seem dark, it does mean that it's, it's dark because things are also getting better. So um, have faith in that light to uh, sort of vanquish the darkness. Absolutely.
And now we move on to Bantha Fodder, in which, although I'll let you know, this whole episode has felt like one long Bantha Fodder, just like our most recent episode, but Bantha Fodder is still a tradition we're going to go for. Um, we're going to keep it short, as this episode has been going on for a while already. We've had a lot to discuss. Ross, as our guest, uh, you know, let's move on to Bantha Fodder, discussing whatever's on your mind, Star Wars, politics, or otherwise. All right, well... Uh, thank you guys again for having me on. Um, you know, my bantha fodder today is it's kind of personal. As I stated at the start of the show, uh, Charlotte was my hometown. Um, I grew up there. Every photograph, every video that has been displayed across uh, social media and the news, it's a location that I recognize. I, I mean, the uh, the place where the terrorist attack occurred, the fellow driving his car into a crowd. Yeah, I've been there countless times. I've lost count number of times I've been to that that exact location walking along. Um, you know, I, I grew up going to the library only a few blocks away. And, uh, you know, and I've, I've visited the statues that the, the center of this problem. You know, the last time I was there, in fact, some gentleman with his wife walked up there with a Confederate flag and he had his wife take his picture with it. And... Someone just walking a dog immediately just shouted, "Hey, aho, get the hell out of here!" Uh, so it's, it's it's an ongoing issue, and it's it's uh, also a, it's, it's sort of a, a uncomfortable, not uncomfortable, but um, it's hard for I think a lot of people who live in Charlottesville who grew up there you know, moved there because we, we like to think that our home is this much more progressive place. It's an island of forward thinking. And um, we want to believe we're a greater I, version of it at Thomas Jefferson's academic village, which was supposed to be like this place of, you know, thought and philosophy and progress. But, um, you know, I don't want to take too much time here, you know. But, uh, you know, I, after seeing a weekend of those familiar places, seeing my friends and family respond on Facebook and just being completely disheartened by all the violence and the darkness that inhabited the, those cherished spaces. You know, the, the thing is to remember is that um, my the lesson here is, you know, don't don't take it for granted what we have now. Don't be comfortable with the situation we are in. Up until 2015, everyone just assumed that the statue of Robert E. Lee and there's another statue of Thomas Stonewall Jackson were always going to be there because they'd always had been there. And we, we get complacent with how society is. And even when such virulent racists like the, the types that came in to march and protest in Charlottesville this last weekend make us feel comfortable, like, oh, we're not like them. We can't be complacent with that idea because, you know, majority of people were willing to just sort of look aside that those statues were always there until someone finally suggested doing something about it a couple of years ago. Now, we can all look at ourselves and ask ourselves, what can we do to make our world better, more inclusive and diverse and welcoming to everyone? And my Bantha Fodder uh, wraps up with just the fact that, you know, challenge your own perceptions, challenge your own complacency, and ask yourself, you know, Am I doing enough just to challenge my own worldviews? And uh, I think that uh, when you do that, uh, for the most part, you'll see that there's something that you probably can do that you can just a little change, different perspective that can make things a better place. And it's not an indictment of yourself. 
It's just saying, hey, I'm just going to rethink, review the world around me. And the result is a better place. Very well said, my friend. Uh, my Bantha Fodder uh, sort of tailgates off of that because the conversation about race and representation and minorities and diversity is now more important than ever. Uh, the conversation Stephen and I had two weeks ago was, in my opinion, was amazing. It was a truly wonderful and cathartic effort on both our parts to have that difficult conversation. Society at large needs to be having more of those. These white supremacists and neo-Nazis and racists, they benefit from the conversation not being had. They benefit from people being scared and insecure to talk openly about race and how people are feeling. They benefit from just people being in those silos. And I don't want to sound too extreme here. I'm not saying that by not having the conversation, you're aiding the racists or neo-Nazis or anything like that in any sort of way. If you feel uncomfortable doing it, then fine, perhaps. But I really hope more people will be brave enough to take up this difficult conversation. And you know, I'm just going to say it. I think this is something even in the Star Wars community, in the fandom community, we can do more. A couple of weeks ago, there was a discussion about whether this Return of the Jedi white-bearded guy was Rex from the Clone Wars. And a lot of people felt genuinely hurt by it. Uh, People who care about Maori descent because the clones are played by a Maori actor, Tamura Morrison. And... You know, they retracted that saying that Lucasfilm or whoever the writer was retracted saying that guy was a, that white guy was a Maori uh, person, you know, essentially in the galaxy. And that was good. But then I also saw fans, a couple of fans, I'm not going to say who, but who said, oh, this is just some other fans causing drama. They're just not letting them have our fun little Easter egg. It wasn't so much that. I was disappointed that they didn't agree. Not at all. I mean, I think if they think that should be Rex, that's fine. What disappointed me most is that they were so unwilling and vocally unwilling to have the conversation, that they were so unwilling to consider the feelings of those hurt fans who care about this racial representation. It all ties in together. You know, again, not trying to sound extreme here that this is aiding or abetting neo-Nazis or white supremacists in any way. But I do genuinely believe in my heart that this benefits them from not having the conversation. So I just implore our listeners to have that open and active discussion generally so we can all make progress and we can all understand each other a bit better. That's my Gantham fodder. And with that, we are now at the end of another episode of Beltway Banthas. This was episode 37, and we were joined today by special guest, Ross Brown. Ross, where can people find you online and get familiar with more of your work if they'd like to? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me today. You can find me on Twitter at Wolf's Ghost. That's capital W with an E after Wolf for Ghost. I write for fangirlblog.com, and I also have my own scribblings at brownsreview.com, too. Fantastic. You can find me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent eight nine. That's Stephen with a PH underscore Kent eight nine and Beltway Banthas at Beltway Banthas. You can find me on Twitter at Swarasaleh one. That's S W A R A S A L I H one. You can, like Stephen said, follow Beltway Banthas at Beltway Banthas. Also, please leave us a rating and review. Oh, Wait, 
shoot, weren't we supposed to read the review by Bobby or something? I, I, cu- I cut it out to make room for more email. Okay, cool. cool. Yeah. Sorry, let me start that again. You can follow me on Twitter at Suarasaleh1. That's S-W-A-R-A-S-A-L-I-H-1. You can find us, like Stephen said, at Beltway Banthas. And also, guys, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps the show a lot. Um, you can also uh, join this Facebook group I have. It's called Sounds from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. We discuss everything in Star Wars music and their intersections. John Williams, Michael Giacchino, the new composer for the Han Solo film, John Howell and much more and uh, you can also follow me on instagram at swarto that's s-w-a-r-t-o mostly i post about food and trees and nature and stuff so i think you'll like that (laughs) folks we look forward to hearing from you either in our email inbox or in the review column thank you so much for sticking with us for another episode of beltway banthas we'll be back a week from now with more And then we'll be back with a regular episode the week after that. Uh, Thanks so much, and may the Force be with you. Always.